All right. So we're going to uh, study Romans chapter 10 today. If you want to uh, find your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 10. Uh, we're continuing our uh, sermon series in the book of Romans. I've had a two-week break thanks to the Labar boys. Peter started chapter 9 and Bishop Neil finished it. Um, so I get to pick us up again with chapter 10. Um, and this week, uh, in one of my morning prayer times, I read some words for the first time from a Jewish sage called Shimon ben Sirach. You might have heard of him. Uh, ben Sirach lived a couple of hundred years before Jesus, and uh, he wrote these words. He said, when you praise the Lord, exalt him as much as you can, for he will surpass even that. When you exalt him, put forth all your strength and do not grow weary, for you cannot praise him enough. Who has seen him and can describe him? Or who can extol him as he is? Isn't that awesome? I love that. And reading those words, I felt just a great sense of peace and joy, a bit like a kid in the vast ocean, in the thought that I cannot overpraise my God. It is impossible. I cannot say more of him than is true. No matter how highly I think of him, he is better even than that. And with all my strength, summoning all my command of language and opening up to him my whole heart, the best that I can do is offer him kind of a dog's slobbery appreciation <laughs> for its master, which is full of enthusiasm, but almost entirely ignorant of the reality. But nevertheless, we are commanded to try, to try. So as I begin this morning, by way of recap, before we dig into the text of Romans 10, I want to remember again the sheer greatness of our God and to do my best to praise him as much as I can, because that will get us back to where we were at the end of Romans chapter 8 and the high point of Paul's gospel. So we remember for starters that our God made the whole universe, everything seen and unseen, which we now know is approximately 93 billion light years wide. And he has named every star. Within that universe, he has fashioned the earth, a miracle of rock and water, light and air, ice and magma, a delicate spinning balance of gravity, heat, radiation, tectonics, and magnetism that cradles 8.7 million species of life. All of our science so far has discovered maybe only about a quarter of everything that lives that God has named. But God designed each one, built each one, named each one, and loves each tiny thing. And his whole ecosystem works together to sustain itself through countless countless chemical reactions. It renews itself and recycles every mineral seemingly indefinitely and in a way that has proven remarkably robust against the ravages of man. And within this abundant panoply, every individual creature reflects God's creative glory. So pick one, pick any one and find breathtaking artistry. I don't know which of God's creatures gives you the most wonder. But for me right now, it is the hummingbird. <clears throat> These tiny birds, they can weigh as little as a tenth of an ounce, but they can hover in flight, beating their wings about 88 times a second, 
while their little hearts pump at over a thousand beats a minute. They feel themselves purely on nectar from flowers, which they sip through their long, uniquely designed beaks in mid-flight. And while they're eating it, their digestive systems are converting that nectar into useful energy within 40 minutes of them sipping it. And their kidneys are wicking away the excess water at a rate so fast that they might um, get rid of five times their own body weight of water in a single day. When you put a hummingbird in a wind tunnel with turbulent airflow, they are able to so perfectly adjust their position as to remain exactly in place under any conditions. Their eyes can see not only the visible spectrum, but also the ultraviolet spectrum. And they are able to store 100% of their own weight in body fat so they can migrate 500 miles in a single flight. Relative to their size, that's like a human traveling 7,000 miles on a single meal. So all in all, that is one remarkable piece of design, isn't it? If you set the most highly advanced military drone, the best thing that centuries of human technology can do next to a hummingbird, you'd laugh at the disparity and complexity. And remember that God is only playing by the same rules that we are. He's, he's constrained by the same gravity and the same laws of thermodynamics and the same energy and everything else, the same materials we have. And he lets us investigate every single thing that he does all the designs of his work. And even so, even so, the finest accomplishments of men are but kindergarten scribbles compared to the least work of God, are they not? And that's just what he's done. Think about who God is. What he has done is so much less than who he is almighty, all-seeing, all-knowing, and good all the time over the eternity of his existence. God has never, never once done a shabby or selfish thing. He has never done the least imperfect thing, nothing callous, nothing cowardly, or in the least bit careless or clumsy. All is love all the time, and peace and joy and justice all the time. Can you even imagine? And in his perfect justice, not the tiniest injustice or evil in all his creation will be left unrooted out or unpunished. Not the least atom that spins out of line with his perfect will will be left uncorrected. And so if our human accomplishments look frail next to the glorious works of God, how much more do our sad and sinful characters look frail compared to his mighty and magnificent heart. One glance at the living God, as he truly is, leaves the best of us saying, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. But we still haven't climbed the full mountain of the greatness of God, because his greatest glory of all is to show mercy to sinners. Good news indeed that this great and mighty God most chiefly shows his glory in grace to us. He declares his name, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The only appropriate way to come to God is on our knees. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked, 
but loved, treasured, and gloriously rescued. God has set the cross of Jesus between our souls and the grave. The Son of God, the Good Shepherd, has laid down his life for the sheep and given us his own righteousness. And Paul cries out in joy, so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who comes to him in faith. And this is the God that Paul extols in the book of Romans. And Paul just bathes in the glory. But then he comes to chapter 9 and he bumps up against this great problem. We have to feel the weight of this problem. If God is as great and as powerful as he is, and if God is as loving and as faithful to his people as he is, and if his word is as clear in pointing to Jesus the Messiah as it is, then how come the Jewish people missed it? How could God allow so many of them to miss it? This might not seem like a terribly big problem to us because we're so used to Jewish people rejecting Jesus that it feels completely normal. But we need to realize what a massive problem this was in Paul's eyes as a Jew himself and as part of a church that was majority Jewish and was being called a heretical sect. The troubling question is, why is Jesus not obviously accepted as the Jewish Messiah in the eyes of the leadership? And the problem is so big that it seems to point a poke an enormous hole in Paul's gospel. Because will Paul really accuse the high priest and the Sanhedrin and most of the highest ranking Jewish leaders of spiritual blindness? Is he going to say that? And if so, on what grounds can he possibly say that? And that is the subject of Romans 9 through 11. And here in chapter 10, we have Paul's deepest dive into the Hebrew scriptures of the whole letter. He's calling the witnesses of the Old Testament to his aid. And he wants to say that God is faithful and true despite the response of his chosen people. And Paul's case hangs on the triple witness of Moses and Isaiah and David, the three pillars of Old Testament Judaism. Okay, so I hope you have Romans 10 open in front of you. We're going to look at the three witnesses. The witness of Moses and Isaiah and David has always been, says Paul, first, that the salvation of God's people comes through the mouth and through the heart. Second, that a message would go out that would need to be believed. And third, that Israel was going to be stubborn about believing that message. That was the witness of the Old Testament. So, First, salvation comes through the mouth and the heart. In other words, not through the body, not through the works. It's not through what we do, but who we believe in and who we call on. And that, says Paul, is not a new religion. That is not a new idea. That is an old idea. It has always been the case with God. So he starts off with Moses, beginning in Romans 10, verse 5. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, says to Israel, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then you will live. And that, says Paul, is righteousness based on works. But Moses also says in the very same chapter, we read it just now, for this commandment that I commanded you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven and bring it down for us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you would say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Moses says, no, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth 
and in your heart so that you can do it. That's so important to Paul. Paul explains in Romans 10 verse 6 that this word from Moses is a statement of righteousness based on faith. Because, according to Moses' logic, the mouth and the heart precede the body. The believing and the calling precede the doing, and these are the real mechanisms of salvation. Moses says that Israel did not need to ascend to heaven or cross the sea to find God's word, but instead it came straight to them. And now Paul is saying in verses 6 and 7 that neither did Israel have to ascend to heaven to bring Christ down or to descend to the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead, but instead he came straight to them. So God has always been the initiator of salvation. We didn't go off and find him. We didn't go off and invent him. Instead, God brings salvation straight to us and we receive it from him. And that reception, that belief, and that trust in what God is doing, that is salvation. And it always has been. So Paul lands heavily on Moses' words, it is in your mouth and in your heart. And he explains them in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. I distinctly remember when I was in college, one of the girls in our Christian fellowship came up to me after a Bible study one night, and she was distraught, anxious, and teary, and fearful. And she told me that she'd been up at night wrestling in prayer, and she just didn't know if she was saved, or if she might one day end up in hell. And I took her here to Romans chapter 10, and I asked her, is Jesus your Lord? And she said, yes. And I asked her, do you believe that God raised him from the dead? And she said, yes. And I said, then you're saved. The Bible says so, and it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. So I just love verse 9. I find so much security and comfort in this verse. And Paul takes it directly from Moses. In Deuteronomy, and then he backs it up with first Isaiah and then with Joel. Isaiah says, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone, that means not just Israel, but the Gentiles too. Isaiah said it, and belief is the critical ingredient, not works of the law. After all, how would Gentiles ever save themselves through the law? And because the mechanism of salvation is the same for everyone, that's why in verse 12 there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. No distinction between Jew and Greek? Can you imagine how offensive that is to Jewish ears? With all the effort they've put in to keep God's law? So alarming. And then Paul adds the prophet Joel. Joel said it first. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 32, this is not a new religion, says Paul. This is authentic Judaism as it has been from the beginning. Read the Bible. So first, salvation has always come through the mouth and the heart. Now second, the Bible also sets up the Jewish people to expect a message that needs to be believed. So Paul begins a sequence of sound logic in verse 14. When he says, okay then, the important thing is calling on the name of the Lord. And then he says, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? 
How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? All right, so the important thing for us to notice here is that the Hebrew Bible prepared Israel that a new message was coming, a message that would be life-changing and key to salvation. Good news. Good news to Israel, right? Otherwise, why would Isaiah say in chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? He's speaking to Israel, and Israel has the law. So if the law can save them, what kind of good news are they still waiting to hear? What more has God to say to them? But there must be something more because Isaiah prepares them for a new message, for good news, for a message that's brought by heralds with beautiful feet. They were taught to expect an unexpected announcement and to be ready for another great word from God. And Paul says, here it is. What word of God could be more glorious than his gospel? And it comes, just as Isaiah predicted, carried on the beautiful feet of heralds. So the people of Israel should have been ready. And yet Isaiah also prepares the heralds that the people will not be ready. Because verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, Paul says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's a painful verse, but it establishes Paul and his gospel message in the lineage of Isaiah a truth-telling prophet who is simply not believed. And then Paul, Paul concludes in verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you followed this far and you've got to this point in Paul's uh, book of Romans and you hear this message that faith comes from hearing, we realize what a logical and what a natural conclusion this is from everything Paul has been saying. And we drive it home to ourselves by realizing in our hearts that if our families and our friends and our neighbors and the people of Tallahassee and the rest of the world who don't know about Jesus are ever going to put their faith in Jesus, then they need to hear about him. They need to hear. Faith comes through hearing. They will not be saved merely by our friendliness. They need the gospel. The hungry will not be saved by a sandwich. They need the gospel. And refugees will not be saved merely by a place to live. They need the gospel. So we often hear St. Francis of Assisi quoted as saying, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. But Snopes that, it's almost certain St. Francis didn't say it. Because he knew, as well as Paul did, that words are always necessary. We are gospel people, and the gospel is our good news. And to think that we can be good news in the world without speaking about the gospel is nonsense. So, friends, who among your friends and family <coughs> and neighbors has never heard the gospel from your lips? Who has never heard the good news that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all their sins so that they could have eternal life in heaven with God? Has anyone not heard that from your lips? And if so, how soon can you tell them? Because how will they call on him if they don't believe in him? How will they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear if they are not told? I am sending you. Will they believe you? Probably not. 
Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? But by the power of God, they might. And you will have saved an eternal soul. So try. All right. So first, salvation comes through the mouth and the heart. Now, second, a message. Oh, no, we did second. A message has gone out that needs to be believed. <laughs> now, third, you'll be pleased to know. <clears throat> Isaiah is going to be, uh, Israel is going to be stubborn about believing the message. So Isaiah predicted this as well. And this all comes back around to the core of the problem that we started with. How could the almighty God, as big as he is, allow so many of his chosen people to miss out on the true Messiah? And this is such a painful problem. And we must remember that Paul asked this question with tears. At the beginning of chapter 9, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And I myself have felt something of this anguish. And it came at one of the times of my life when I was most connected with the heart of God. It was on uh, my first trip to Israel while we were doing all the touristy things. And I went down to the western wall of the temple in Jerusalem to pray. And it was me in shorts and flip-flops, t-shirt and baseball cap, surrounded by dozens of Orthodox Jewish men with their long black coats and hats and prayer shawls. And I was clearly a tourist coming into their sacred space. And I found myself a place at the wall where I was close enough to touch the stones. And I stood between two Jewish men who were praying aloud in Hebrew out of their prayer books and bowing toward the wall. And one was on my right and one was on my left. And I reached forward to pray to God and I laid my hands on the wall and it was like an electric current ran through me. And I was instantly filled with the power of God. And I trembled like a leaf in the wind. And the overwhelming feeling was of my heart breaking and being filled up with pain for the man on my right and the man on my left. So zealous, so earnest, so faithful to their prayers, but blocked by centuries of mistrust from knowing the Messiah who could save them and who would save them in a heartbeat, but they would not come to him. And I stood there and I wept bitterly, knowing that I was weeping not my own tears, but the Father's tears, and knowing that God's heart was always breaking over his people who refused to come home. So as we cover this last section of chapter 10, Paul's verdict on the Jewish people at the end of this passage is somewhat negative. And I realize that it's one thing for Paul to say it as a Jew himself, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, and it's quite another thing for me to repeat it as a Gentile outsider. But please know, as I give you Paul's verdict here, that I do it with tears and not with any kind of pleasure and with no kind of anti-Semitic bias. Paul asks in verse 18, is it possible that the Jews have not heard the message? And he concludes that it is not possible. So first he quotes from David in Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And we know that in truth, the gospel had not made it around the entire globe by the end of Paul's life, but we also know that it had made it to every part of the world where Jewish people were living. Where there were Jews, there was the message of Jesus. So to that degree, Paul's words are true here. Also, as we think about our situation today, we remember 
Paul's words in Romans 1 about the testimony of creation. God's eternal power and divine nature are demonstrated in every one of the things he has made. So Paul says men are without excuse. That is also the thrust of Psalm 19, which he's quoting here. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. So where there are hummingbirds, there is a constant witness to the glory of God and one that demands that men seek their creator. So there can be no doubt that Israel has heard the message. The second question Paul asks in verse 19 is, have they understood it? And again, there can be no doubt. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 32, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So if the truth is evident to a foolish nation, it's surely evident to enlightened Israel. And Isaiah re reinforces this point in chapter 65, God saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And so if Israel had clearly heard the message and clearly understood it, there can only be one verdict. And that is, they just refuse to believe it. This is Paul's conclusion. So in the next verse, in Isaiah 65, God laments that all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. These two words, disobedient and contrary, are the Greek negatives of the verbs to persuade and to speak. So they mean unpersuadable and contradictory, or disobedient and obstinate. And rather than pointing fingers and being judgmental, let's remember how naturally disobedient and stubborn and obstinate we are too, and how hard that must make life for the good shepherd as he tries to shepherd us. Let's resolve to be more yielding to his hand. All right, so in Romans 10, Paul tackled the major problem of the widespread Jewish rejection of Jesus by drawing deeply on the witness of the Old Testament. From the testimony of Moses and Isaiah and David, he demonstrated first that salvation comes through the heart and through the mouth. Second, that a message would go out that would need to be believed. And third, that Israel would be stubborn about believing that message. All of those Old Testament prophecies were coming to pass right before Paul's very eyes. But for us this morning, I want us to remember the greatness of our God. How good he is how mighty and glorious, so that we will stand confidently in his name, despite the scorn and unbelief of the world. And also to remember his father's heart toward his lost children, that he grieves deeply for all who die without knowing him, especially the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So if you yourself have not come home to him today, then come home to him today. Turn his mourning into dancing that you were lost but have been found. The good shepherd takes no greater joy than in finding one of his lost sheep. And finally, we remember that we are the heralds of the only news that can save. If they do not hear, they will not believe. And if we do not speak, they will not hear. So let us be single-mindedly men and women of the message. Let's live the message, yes, and demonstrate the message by our love, but also let's never lose a chance to speak the message. They must hear. 
So in just a few moments, we're going to hear an announcement about a charity organization called Compassion International. I expect that you've heard of it. And I just want to say here as I close that I deeply admire Compassion, uh, and mainly for the reason that they have never lost their focus on the gospel. Last year, Compassion became a billion-dollar charity for the first time. They joined a fairly small club. Compassion is now the eighth largest charity in the United States, the second largest Christian charity behind the Salvation Army, and it's the only billion-dollar charity in this country to take both financial aid and the gospel overseas. It works in 25 countries. It employs 900 people. It supports more than 8,000 frontline partners, and it transforms the lives of 2.2 million children. And wherever compassion goes, the gospel goes, the name of Jesus goes, the message of life so that people are not just fed, but also saved. And that's the way the church ought to be doing mission. So I warmly commend them to you for financial support. And let's follow their example to be single-mindedly men and women of the message. Amen.